And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Uh, good morning and welcome to the Wednesday edition of uh, The Real Investment Show. It's uh, you know March as we get ready to head into the rest of the month. First trading day of the month, not going as well as expected. Yesterday, markets did sell off here. Of course, uh, just again, additional news about what's happening in Russia, escalation there, uh, troops moving in to, and, and really kind of surrounding Kiev right now. That's putting a lot of stress on markets in general. Just the, and, and it's not just the invasion itself, but it's also the sanctions, the impacts to economic growth, all those type of things. Yesterday, the Atlanta Fed, who tracks what they call GDP Now. So if you go to the Atlanta Fed website, if you just Google GDP Now, uh, you'll get a, a link to the Atlanta Fed website that'll take you to their real-time estimate of GDP. Now, this, and they update this on a regular basis based upon the inputs that are coming in from economic activity. All the economic reports we get, whether it's ISM or retail sales, whatever it is. So yesterday, they came out with their latest update to their GDP estimate for the first quarter of this year. And it was equivalent to John Belushi's GPA in Animal House. <laughs> Zero point zero. So... It's really not funny. <laughs> it's not funny, but most people just yeah. don't get that reference anyway. But anyway, you know, so you, it's an apt reference. If you, if you don't, exactly. If you don't get the reference, go watch Animal House. Um, anyway, the, the point here, though, is that GDP growth is flat. Now, this is based on their estimate. However, unfortunately, that is going to get worse because of what's happening with these international sanctions and more importantly what's happening with oil prices oil prices up over hundred dollars a barrel yesterday up again this morning and that is going to put more downward pressure on economic growth uh, there's an old saying about high prices high prices are a cure for high prices in other words high prices in oil are great but that also impacts economic growth, ultimately demand. People can afford less, so they don't buy as much. They you know, stay at home, don't travel as much uh, because they can't afford it. So that puts downward pressure on oil prices. And typically when we see oil prices this extended, um, that has basically been a peak in oil prices and more importantly, energy stocks. Now we, we republished an article yesterday talking about, we had written an exclusive article for Market Watch last week. We published it yesterday on our website saying it might be time to take profits in energy stocks. Energy stocks have done great over the course of the last year. They're up very sharply. They're outperforming the S&P 500 this year by over 20%. So again, that type of you know bifurcation of performance is often, often also a sign that you might want to take a little bit of profit off the table. It's, you know, you're on a good winning streak don't let it all revert to a loss, right? So take a few profits. Doesn't mean sell, look, let me be really clear. When I say profits, I always get emails like, why are you selling everything? Oil prices are up. We're not selling everything. We're taking a little profit here, right? Just reducing our positions back to market weight. And we'll, we'll talk about that some more this morning about how to risk size a position. Uh, we'll do that with Danny Ratliff when he joins us here in a few minutes. Um, outside of that though, not oil did oil prices do well. 
Bonds have been doing exceptionally well. You know, we talked about earlier this year about adding bonds to our portfolio, and particularly as we kind of were, were really getting extended here to the downside on yields, as yields were kind of breaking above 2%. We were talking about adding bonds to portfolios. Of course, we got a lot of emails like, why are you buying bonds? Yields are going up. Don't you know the Fed's raising interest rates? Long yields don't have anything to do with, with Fed interest rates in the short end. They control the short end. They don't control the long end. The long end is controlled by what? Economic growth and economic environments and geopolitical risk. All those type of things control the long end of the curve. When you have a geopolitical event like what's happening with Russia, money goes into the U.S. dollar and ultimately into treasuries. If I'm trying to store currency for safety, that's where it goes. And not surprisingly, we've seen a very sharp rally in bonds here over the last couple of days. Took a little bit of profits in our, in our uh, 2080 models yesterday because they have a lot of bond exposure. They're 20% stocks, 80% bonds. Lots of exposure to fixed income there. So taking a bit of profit there out of some of the recent purchases. Again, as, as the 10-year uh, treasury is now approaching uh, it's resistance. It's kind of first initial resistance. We're not there just yet. As economic growth slows, we're likely going to see much lower rates, probably somewhere around 1.3, 1.4% on the 10-year Treasury by the end of this year. So again, there's more to go here, but wouldn't be surprising here to see a little bit of relief in the markets. As we had talked about yesterday in particular, um, we're at that point uh, kind of in the markets where markets are really trying to make a decision here about what's going to happen. There, there's a lot of headwinds, of course, with equities. We had this nice, we had a little sell-off yesterday after a very sharp rally, really not surprising. Um, markets did rally kind of right into to resistance a bit, sold off a bit yesterday. Now, uh, futures are pointing up this morning, about 250 points on the Dow, um, about another 30 points on the S&P. So we'll see a little bit of a reflexive rally this morning. Again, stock price is really trying to hold above these uh, previous support levels at January lows. That's a good positive sign. We're getting uh, close. We, we do have a buy signal in place as well. That's supportive of markets. And more importantly, supportive of markets has been really kind of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is this kind of risk on, risk off attitude. And it's more of a speculative investment than it is uh, really kind of anything else. But Bitcoin has had a very nice rally here. With cryptocurrencies in general have had a very nice rally here over the last couple of days. Now, they're getting a bit extended here on this rally. So, but it's been good, but they did trigger a buy signal that does suggest there is some more upside here uh, to cryptocurrencies, at least in the short term. And again, that's that speculative flavor, which suggests that we might get a little bit more bullish push in the S&P here for the next week or so heading into the Fed meeting. But don't let me, you know, don't dismiss this as, you know, the risk that we're currently facing, because while we have this going on with Russia, which is a problem, the sanctions are a problem economically, oil prices are a problem economically, and they, but high oil prices also inflationary. Now you've got the Fed coming up at the 15th of the month. They're going to be talking about hiking interest rates. They're in a really tough spot here. They've got to choose either between, between trying to bail out the economy at this point, which is growing very weakly, or trying to combat inflation, but you can't do both because the way that you kill inflation through monetary policy is by tightening policy to reduce economic growth, but economic growth is already slowing sharply. So the Fed is in a very, very tough spot here trying to uh, combat inflation at a time where their tools may be much less effective in this current environment. This morning, we're going to get into a little bit of Joe Biden's State of the Union address last night. One particular section, you know, he, he kind of talked a lot about Build Back Better, talked about 
you know, getting rid of divisiveness in the country. Um, that's, that's all great, fine and dandy. But one thing you talked about was solving inf the inflation problem through government policy. And I thought this was really interesting because it is a very mistaken case about how you solve inflation through government policy. And we'll talk about that some when we come back to the break. Uh, when we do come back, Danny Ratliff, Certified Financial Planner, will be joining me as well. We'll talk about the State of the Union address of last night, particularly this one piece about solving inflation because that's what we're all concerned about as families. Also, other topics to get into this morning that relate directly to your money. So stick around. More of The Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. FAVSA. It's FAFSA season, that crucial time of the year when thousands of dollars in financial aid for your college-bound scholar are at stake. Our next free virtual lunch and learn will help you avoid making costly mistakes on the free application for financial student aid, the FAFSA, Thursday, March 10th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next lunch and learn on college planning and dealing with FAFSA season. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Record job growth, higher wages. Too many families are struggling to keep up with their bills. Inflation is robbing them of gains they thought otherwise they would be able to feel. I get it. That's why my top priority is getting prices under control. Look, our economy roared back faster than almost anyone predicted. But the pandemic meant that businesses had a hard time hiring enough people because of the pandemic to keep up production in their factories. So you didn't have people making those beams that went into buildings because they were out. The factory was closed. The panic also disrupted the global supply chain. Factories close. When that happens, it takes longer to make goods and get them to the warehouses, to the stores, and go, prices go up. Look at cars last year. One-third of all the inflation was because of automobile sales. There weren't enough semiconductors to make all the cars that people wanted to buy. And guess what? Prices of automobiles went way up, especially used vehicles as well. But, and so we have a choice. One way to fight inflation is to drive down wages and make Americans poor. I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. The solution to solving inflation, according to President Biden, is to lower costs rather than lower wages. And, and it's, it's an interesting idea. Right. And so the speech goes on, of course, and he talks about how do we do that? Well, 
we bring it all the manufacturing now back to America, right? We manufacture it here. We, we buy American. We build American. Um, sounds very similar to uh, the previous administration, whose entire premise of getting elected was to make America great again. Um, interesting to see, you know, the entire, you know, recycling of the same message that we need to bring, you know, manufacturing and things back to the U.S. But that doesn't solve your inflation problem. It actually would make it worse. And the reason is, as we've talked about before, and this is what we're seeing going on right now, your highest input cost to any business is labor. It is the biggest ticket item you get because it's not just the cost of wages, it's the taxes on top of the labor, it's the uh, benefits, it's the health care, it's the 401k plan matching, it's all the other things that we all want, right? As individuals, I don't want to work for a company that's not going to give me a 401k plan and full, you know, full medical coverage, right? I mean, why would I do that? But those are all costs that ultimately have to get embedded into the products that we produce. And we've talked about this before on the show, and it's just something that seems to, to magically just kind of bypass the... <laughs> the average American that says, you know, we need to have higher wages. You know, I need $15 an hour. In fact, that was a point that Joe Biden made last night is that we need to pass the $15 hour minimum wage. It sounds great, but somebody has to pay that cost. It's not free. And if I have to pay a higher wage than what I pay overseas, well, then that means that cost has to get embedded. So in other words, instead of buying a flat screen, uh, uh, Brent just went and bought a, a brand new flat screen television just uh, over the weekend, didn't you? A couple of weekends ago. A yeah. couple of weekends yeah. ago. Yeah. What'd yeah. you pay for that? It was 65 inch, right? Ah, 65. Yeah. Yeah. Just under three. $300. No. $3,000. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but if you want to buy that same television, you know, made in America it would cost you probably north of six because of all the embedded costs. And look, this is just simply a function of how the math works. And this is why labor ultimately goes to the lowest cost provider. We don't like the fact that we produce everything in, in you know, uh, other countries like Korea and China and Mexico and other places, but it's because that's the lowest cost of labor. You may like that, you may not like that, that we produce elsewhere. We're shipping our jobs offshore. And this has been one of the, the great thorns in the sides of American unionization. Is like, we're offshoring all of our jobs. Yes, we are. Because that's the lowest cost of labor. It's what keeps costs down. And that's what allows you to have the things that you have in your house because we want the lowest cost of goods. And what we do as Americans is we export inflation to import deflation. So look around your house. How much? How many things do you own in your house that are that are manufactured in America versus manufactured everywhere else around the world, from clothes to furniture to electronics, et cetera? And the reason is, is that we're importing deflation. We import deflation. We are keeping costs down. To Joe Biden's point, we don't need to lower wages if we can import deflation. But you can't import deflation if you're keeping your cost embedded domestically where you have to pay higher wages. That's the ultimate problem. Greg Hayes, who was the uh, CEO of Carrier Industries, we've talked about this before, I wrote about it as well, 
uh, previously, but he was interviewed after Donald Trump got elected, and Carrier Industries was one of the first companies to bring jobs back to America. They moved a plant from Mexico to, to Indiana. When they moved the plant from Mexico to Indiana, first of all, they got like $7 billion in tax breaks from Indiana to move that, that plant back. But, the, but um, um, Jim Cramer, I drew a blank there for a second, interviewed Greg Hayes on his show, and he says, why are you doing this? He says, well, first of all, our parent company, which was United Technologies at the time, now Raytheon, has a lot of government contracts, so we want to keep the president happy. <laughs> right? We want to keep those government contracts, those government contracts, very lucrative. But the second thing is we're moving them back here because we're getting a lot of tax breaks in Indiana to move the plant. But we're doing this more for a political endeavor than it is for a profiteering venture. It says, in Mexico, I have a labor force that's very dedicated. These are his words, not mine. I'm paraphrasing a bit. We have a very dedicated labor force in Mexico that works for about $5 an hour. They don't ask for time off benefits or paid vacation. They show up, they work, and they work very hard. When I move that plant to Indiana, we're going to have to automate most of those jobs because the cost of labor is too high. And that's exactly what happened. So the idea of manufacturing in America is great, but that doesn't solve your inflation problem. It makes the problem worse. And right now we already have rising wages, which is an inflation problem in the U.S. It is contributing to the inflation problem. Unfortunately, the price of everything else is rising faster because of why? Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. The reason we have inflation running at 7 7.5% is not because we have strong economic growth. We don't. We have artificial economic growth from the last two years where you injected $5 trillion worth of monetary liquidity into the economy. Everybody went out to buy stuff, Brent buying televisions, <laughs> at a time where we can't manufacture them because we shut down everything. It was interesting last night, uh, Joe Biden says, we had have the strongest manufacturing growth in like a decade. 300,000 manufacturing jobs came roaring back. Yeah, we lost like 600,000 manufacturing jobs during the shutdown, but we got some of them back. That's the good thing, right? It's all about how we cherry pick our data points. But the point here is simply this, is that you can't solve inflation through monetary intervention. He wants to lower the cost of childcare by giving people more money. Absolutely doesn't work. Because it's if I give, well, if I give Danny more money for childcare, even through a tax credit, Right? What do child care providers immediately do? Child care providers raise their prices <laughs> because I know Danny's got more money to pay for it. This is the whole problem with everything we've been doing for the last two years is that everything that we do government-wise is inflationary, not deflationary. Danny, good morning. Welcome to the show. Sorry I had a little rant to get off on this morning. No, good morning. No, and all val really valid points. I mean, if you think about it, the, the monetary and fiscal policy, this has been creating an issue, and it will continue to create an issue. And you, you mentioned how you cherry-pick all these different ideas in the sense of saying, hey, look look how good this is. 300,000 people are back to work. Well, guess what? 300,000 are still sitting on the sideline. Um, money that was there that, you know, this, this whole environment was inflationary regardless if they had not taken away all the things that made it inflationary, but now it's even worse because people have less money in their pocket, yet we still have that inflation that's still here. Right. So that's where the, the bigger issue lies, I think. And, and it's hitting households everywhere. We all love the idea of, of made in the USA, mm -hmm. but we hate paying for it. 
Yeah. Well, it all comes down to that, right? Ultimately, yeah. the end of the day is what we pay for things. And, you know, this is one of the big challenges right now. And, and unfortunately, it's a huge challenge for the Fed. You know, I was just talking about it in the opening segment is that the Atlanta Fed just came out and pegged GDP at zero. And that is before the impact of, of higher oil prices, which will slow economic growth even mm -hmm. more. So there's a real risk right now. If the Fed does nothing, there's a real risk we could be a near a recessionary drag by the end of this year. If they hike rates, that's going to accelerate that recessionary drag even faster. So, you know, the idea that the Fed is going to hike three, four, five, six, seven times this year, which were some of the estimates, those estimates for the number of rate hikes are coming down sharply. In other words, the Fed may be able to hike three times, maybe four times. But here's the problem. The actual worst thing for the Federal Reserve is to be caught at zero on interest rates and a recession hits because they have no policy tool. Quantitative easing is great for, for supporting asset markets, but it does nothing to help increase economic activity. The only thing that helps increase economic activity has been lowering interest rates, but you're already at zero. And the Fed has a real uh, problem trying to go into negative interest rate environment. It doesn't mean they can't, but there's a lot of other negative consequences economically that occur once you get into negative interest rates. So, you know, this is going to be a real problem for the Fed. And the lesser of two evils may just be the Fed hiking rates fast enough to get to, say, 1% on the Fed funds rate to give them some breathing room. But it causes the onset of a recession much quicker. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com fafsa it's fafsa season that crucial time of the year when thousands of dollars in financial aid for your college-bound scholar are at stake our next free virtual lunch and learn will help you avoid making costly mistakes on the free application for financial student aid the, the FAFSA. fafsa thursday march 10th at noon register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next lunch and learn on college planning and dealing with fafsa season realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the real investment show And welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Ratliff joining me. So just real quick here as we talk about economic growth, inflation. As we've said before, you know, oil prices this morning are going to open up uh, around $110 a barrel. And, you know, this has got everybody kind of excited, right, in oil prices. So it's a good thing. It's interesting, too, you know, for the last two years, the White House has been attacking the oil industry from a variety of, of points, right? So we've been after the oil industry, restricting uh, areas that they can drill on, passing more restrictive rules and regulations, shutting down the Keystone Pipeline. 
uh, you name it, so forth and so on, because we have to do we have to fight climate change. Right. We those evil oil and gas companies. And, you know, well, here you are, one hundred and ten dollars a barrel. and Everybody's going, hey, could you drill some more, please? And the White House is now behind the scenes asking oil companies to please drill more. Drill, baby, drill. We talked about this yesterday. Just not on federal land. Yeah. (laughs) It's a little too late. (laughs) You know, the problem, the the cure for high prices, of course, is high prices. And we now have record levels of what's called backwardation, which even the oil companies are suggesting the oil prices will be lower over the courses of the next seven months. So this is, you know, going to be emblematic of some of the problems. And one of the things we've written about before is that this inflationary surge that we're seeing is going to lead to disinflation over the course of the rest of this year. Now, these higher oil prices are going to slow that disinflationary process temporarily. But once we get into that that uh, later stages of the year, you'll start to witness disinflation uh, from a variety of fronts. And, and part of it is just simply because of how we calculate inflation. It's a year-over-year calculation. So as the front months of the year-over-year calculation, so in other words, right now we're looking at inflation for the month of February. As we get into March, we'll be looking at February versus February of last year. Once we get into April, April actually had positive prints of inflation versus negative prints of inflation that we had in January, February, and March of last year. So as we start getting into these higher rates of inflation, now just imagine in a year from now, right? So when we get into February, March of next year, we're going to be comparing the 7% prints of inflation, 8% prints of inflation, right? So now all of a sudden, if we're not running... 16% inflation in 2023, right? If we're just running the same rate of inflation in 2023 that we're running today, inflation will be zero. That will be the rate of change of inflation. It'll be zero. Now, prices remain high. That doesn't mean prices went down. It just means the inflation will be zero, which is well below the Fed's target 2% rate. So this is going to be the problem. What we're going to witness is not necessarily deflation in terms of prices falling. Prices will fall as the economy slows, by the way. But the difference between disinflation and deflation is disinflation is where we go from having inflation to lower rates of inflation. Deflation is when you go below zero, right? We have negative growth in in prices and rates. Now, we'll get to that, too, again, as we get into 2023 and we're comparing over year-over-year basis, we will have deflation in 2023, particularly um, as we start slowing the economy back down to 2% or less in terms of economic growth, if not recessionary, at some point between the end of this year and next year. So that's the differential, though, between disinflation and deflation. But they are all, they're all basically in the same situation, is that high prices are a cure for high prices because they cramp demand. And they slow economic growth. And then when you have that problem, that slows demand, slows lowers prices, and things start to go in the other direction. That's simply what will happen here. It's just a function of math and time. It's not anything magical. <laughs> it's just the way it works. <laughs> um, but let's talk a little bit about Russia here because it's interesting. You know, there's not just Russia from the standpoint that uh, of just the invasion, but on the investment markets as well. You know, I'm getting a lot of emails, you know, saying, should we buy Russian ETFs, right? Is this time to start buying the Russia ETF? And, and you know, as an example, that ETF was down another 23% yesterday. Um, 
And the answer is that, sure, there may be some time here where you can buy a, a ETF based on Russia or, or buy actual Russian stocks. The question is going to be which ones are in business by the time this all resolves itself. I mean, you may buy want to buy Luke Oil or Rosneft, right? Huge oil companies. But because of what's happening, they could very well file for bankruptcy. Doesn't mean now, and again, you got to be careful about this because bankruptcy doesn't mean a company goes out of business. It just means that the shares you own are worthless and the company goes through bankruptcy reorganization, gets relisted under a different symbol with new shares, and you're still at zero and, and whoever buys it next, you know, gets the benefit. So the question is not knowing which companies survive. I, I don't have that answer. I, I am sure, you know, I would feel confident in saying that probably Rosneft and Luke Oil and others are going to survive. But it kind of really depends on these sanctions and government interventions. And do they open Russia back up to interacting with the rest of the world? Do they keep them locked out of international exchanges? I, I don't know those answers. Nobody does. Depends on how long this thing goes. So you've got to be very careful here, um, <clears throat> you know, looking at, you know, things like this. And again, I, I certainly see the opportunity. Uh, you know, the Russian ETF, as an example, was trading at, uh, roughly uh, $52, almost $53 just back in November. It's currently trading at $6 today. So, and this is, of course, weighed, and this is why, uh, as I've talked about here on the show with Danny before, this is why we avoid, have, have been avoiding international and emerging markets here for quite some time, saying mostly primarily uh, domestic-based, because international markets have continued to really lag performance for a very long time here. And if you've been running this idea of I want a diversified portfolio, this is why you don't. <laughs> um, but having a diversified portfolio of owning international and emerging markets and all this has been a drag on your portfolio really ever since uh, 2009. Being domestically based has been a much better place to be in terms of your portfolio. So understanding these dynamics are very important in how they impact your money. So with that, I'll throw it over to Danny. Well, and I think that's a really good point, Lance. So one of the things that we we discuss frequently is that, you know, how the old school investing is dead. You can't just go out there and just say, hey, you know what? We're going to put it everywhere because we don't really know what's going to go up or go down. But if we don't like it, we're going to reduce it a little bit. If we do, we may increase it. You know, that's hogwash because now you look at the examples that are going on right now and you see exactly what's happening where if you have a portfolio that you do have that emerging market debt. You do have emerging market stocks. This has become problematic. Now, most of them don't have a ton of Russian exposure. You know, on average, you're looking at emerging market debt. It's a little bit over 3 3 to 4% is what you see. But some of these bigger funds actually have a lot more exposure than I think what most people would be comfortable with, especially in this environment and seeing what some of these have gone down. I mean, I'm looking at some of the top emerging market funds, and, you know, we're looking at anywhere from 8 to 16%. In Russian debt. So you want to talk about, you know, usually the good thing about this is that emerging markets are historically a smaller part of a big, broad portfolio. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody's putting, you know, 10, 15% in those areas. It's typically on the smaller end. However, when you see something that goes down, you know, five to 10% in a week, that that can cause a little bit of heartache. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, you know, talk about Russian debt in particular in a lot of these funds that, you know, particularly, and what you don't know with Russia is, you know, you know, again, what happens the longer that they're shut out of SWIFT and the ability to service debt and they're cut off from the rest of the world, that's going to, and this is the whole reason for sanctions, right, is to 
impale them financially, right? Make things so hard on them that they give up economically, right? So just you, this is the whole point of sanctions. Well, that has impacts. If, you know, the Russian ruble has had a very, very, just well, it's collapsed. That's only yeah. the way, really, or the only like way to what, put it. like, what, one cent right now? Yeah. Um, the problem with that is, is the last time that we had a collapse in the Russian ruble was before Danny was born. That was in 1998. I'm joking. He's a little bit older than that. Just a little bit. But in 1998, we were talking about long-term capital management. And this is where we had this $100 billion you know, hedge fund that was run by PhDs here in the U.S. They were supposed to be the brightest of the bright, and they had leveraged themselves up, and they wind up blowing up over the Russian debt default. And you know, the Federal Reserve had to bail them out. So this is not the first time that Russia's defaulted on debt. And the important thing here is when it comes to your portfolio and your money, you don't know exactly in a lot of ETFs and mutual funds and bond funds. You really don't know because you don't do the, you're not digging down into the holdings. You really don't know what exposures you have. And this is why it's always important to do your homework and when things like this come up is to go look at your holdings and say, do I have exposure to these areas? How much exposure do I have to these areas? And if everything in this area goes to zero, what's the impact on my markets and uh, on my portfolio, right? What's the impact on my money? Is there going to be some opportunities when Russia is finished with this and we see the sanctions removed and things return back to a more normal state? Absolutely. Things will soar. The problem is going to be, A, where will it be soaring from? <laughs> you know, uh, again, you know, it was one thing to buy Russia ETFs a week ago versus yesterday. And this morning, they're going to be lower again. So the question is always, where are they soaring from? But the, the, the other part is, is, is the asset that you want, that you're, that you're buying on this expectation of this massive reversion, is it going to still be around? when we pass this and and the problem with is that nobody knows for sure well that's a good point you can reorganize they can ban liquidation mm -hmm. i mean that's a problem right now they're not letting foreign investors liquidate their positions correct so now you're stuck exactly so just sometimes it's not better to try to get in early sometimes it's better to be late because there'll be once we know what survives and what doesn't there'll be plenty of time to make russia uh, make money on a Russian bet. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. FAVSA. It's FAFSA season, that crucial time of the year when thousands of dollars in financial aid for your college-bound scholar are at stake. Our next free virtual lunch and learn will help you avoid making costly mistakes on the free application for financial student aid, the, the FAFSA. FAFSA. Thursday, March 10th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next lunch and learn on college planning and dealing with FAFSA season. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
back to the show this morning. Ben, you doing all right, buddy? Yeah. You know, if, if, if you keep having problems over here like you're having this morning, you're going to lose your hair. <laughs> I think we're way past that point. <laughs> For the audience out there, we're running on two-thirds of our computer strength. Yeah. That's what's happening. Yeah. And so, I'm, I'm doing six things with one mouse and one keyboard. <laughs> But it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like driving a neon. It's impressive. It's like, you know, the space station, but it's uh, a <laughs> neon on one leg. Yeah, I need, I need uh, Elon Musk to come in and rescue me. So did you hear about, though, that, so, you know, the group Anonymous, the hackers, right. they went in and actually hacked the Russian space station or their, all their space capabilities, <laughs> which really, I started thinking about, it's like, man, that's pretty cool. But it also scares you to death because you think about, yeah, I better go change my passwords on the bank account. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> These if guys can, got into there. Yeah. If they can do that, they can oh, they, do they anything. Can they, those guys, can, they were they were hacking Russian military, airplanes. I'm so just glad they're doing it for good, right? I know, right? It's, uh, they get a lot of bad grief, but, you know, they're doing something good now. Yeah. Uh, I was you know, talking about cars. I don't know if you remember back. You probably don't remember, but when I was in college, there was a car called the Yugo made out of oh, Yugoslavia. Yes. You remember this? Yes, right? yes. This car, this car was so bad, it actually came with a cassette tape that you put in, and it went vroom. <laughs> but that's kind of the way you're, you're driving a Yugo this morning. <laughs> I've got the Fred Flintstone brakes. <laughs> so anyway, um, getting ready to wrap up the show this morning. A, a couple of things here just to kind of wrap up with. Is, and again, we're you know getting through earnings season. Most of the, you know, pretty much the predominance of the S&P has reported earnings. That's been done. Uh, this morning, we've got a few few companies coming out. Dollar Tree is reporting this morning. We have, we've had uh, retail sales over the last couple of days. We had Target yesterday and uh, Kohl's and a couple others reporting, you know, good earnings. Now, remember, the thing is, importantly, is that we're talking about fourth quarter earnings when we still had some remnants of the previous fiscal injections in the system right we still had you know extended um you know child tax credits and those type of things still flowing through the system so people were having some excess money to spend last quarter now starting this quarter that's all gone so when we get into march april may of this year and we start reporting by the way that's just right around the corner so when we get i'm sorry not march but we get into april may june of this year, we're going to be talking about January, February, March earnings, which is going to be slower economic growth, you know, less liquidity in the system, and potentially even the Fed of having hiked rates one time already. So when we start reporting that, we could see a lot of these outlooks soften rather markedly. The other thing is, and we've, we've written about this before, is that earnings estimates are still way too high. And just in the course of the last two weeks, those forward estimates, were at, which were at 225 and 230 for 2023 earnings, have now dropped to 209. So that earnings revision that I've been talking about for the last several months has now started to take place. And what's going to happen here is as these forward estimates come down, valuations are going to start to rise again if prices go nowhere. And if prices go up, we're gonna have, we'll have valuations go up even more. So, uh, again, you know, the economic impacts are just now starting to take hold, and we're going to start seeing those impacts as we get further into this year. So make sure and pay attention to, you know, the underlying fundamentals of the companies that you own. 
again, a lot of the outlooks have been very good for these companies, but sustainability of those outlooks is going to be uh, much larger in question, particularly with higher oil prices and those type of things. You know, we could see retail sales start to slow down, you know, more markedly than expected. Danny? I got nothing, Lance. <laughs> you acted like you, you you looked over there like you had something you wanted to add to that little no i mean i think you make some really good points and i mean that's the thing with, with looking at markets and kind of you talked about right sizing portfolios and positions mm -hmm. earlier in the first segment and i think it's really important to understand you know not to sell into frenzy to understand that you know take some take some profits ahead of time or reduce exposure and that's something i think it's difficult for a lot of people is that you know that's the hardest thing to do when you feel like things have gone very well you think they're just going to keep keep running. And so when you can do something like that, you're going to really position yourself to really benefit from some of this volatility in the future because you're going to have the ability to go out and purchase things. And, you know, you talked about you know, looking at PEs, looking at estimates. Everything's still very, very expensive despite what we've seen. And really we've seen a lot of trading sideways since, what, October? I mean, we've gone back up. We've gone back down to those, those lows in January. We've bid right back there again. Now we're trading a bit higher. So really, would you consider this to be kind of a, a place of purgatory to some extent? It is. It, you know, we're just below the 200-day, but yet, you know. We're above support, below the 200-day. Trend is negative, but we're really oversold. This is, the, and, and we've written about this before, this is one of those points in markets where taking a bet in one direction or the other, I think the market's going to go down, or I think the market's going to go up. It's probably going to be wrong. Um, I don't know which one it is, right? I mean, the market is going to do something. The market is either going to go down or it's going to go way up. One of the two. You have extremely negative sentiment. You have, uh, you know, breadth is very negative across the board. You have more 30, uh, more 52-week lows on the NASDAQ than you've had in 30 years. That type of negative sentiment suggests that you've got a lot of fuel for a rally. So all you need is some good news. Russia gives up and goes back. Um, the Fed says, you know what, we're going to hold off hiking rates for the time being until we get past this Russia thing. Whatever it is, right? I mean, any good news in this market is going to rally like a scalded ape. Other side of this is, is that you have the markets in a very negative downtrend. They are overvalued. There's a, there's a tremendous amount. Of the Fed's about to start hiking interest rates. Inflation is running rampant. You know, those are all very bearish economically and very bearish for markets. Historically, it suggests that prices should go lower. So, again, there's a there's a case to be made. And, and of course, I'm getting a lot of emails from people like I'm just all in gold, you know, right now because I'm betting on the end of the world as I know it. Um, that's dangerous because if the market does the opposite. You know, you really stand to get hurt. And again, we, we've written an article about this recently is that trying to avoid a crash can be just as bad for your portfolio than actually being in the crash. Because what happened after 2009, people did a good job getting out of the markets in 2008. They avoided the entire crash in 2008 and early 2009. That's great. They saved all that money. Problem is they never got back in. And then 400% later on the rally in the market, they're now starting to try to figure out how to get back in the markets. Right? So... You, you know, you missed by, by you know, missing a 50% decline. That was great. You also missed the 400% gain. And, that, and I'm not making that up. Danny will tell you he gets calls from people all the time oh, yeah. that have been out of the market for a decade. So, you know, it's important to navigate these things. You don't want to participate, you know, in a 50% decline. Absolutely not. 
but you also can't afford to miss out on the rallies. And making a one-sided bet, if you're wrong, can be just as damaging as being long the markets during a decline. So it's important to, to, to weigh and measure those risks that you take in your portfolio. Well, and keep these things in context. When we talk about you know different types of returns with markets, if the market's down 50%, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily, necessarily going to be down 50%. You take a look at the big picture and as far as how you're fully allocated, how you're invested. I think that's really important to keep in, in context. But you know, the other aspect of, of all the things that are occurring right now, Lance, is that you do see people who are, are jumping in and out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll give you an example. We have we have a couple people that we, we consider bellwethers. And we've talked yeah. about this before when we know when we get this call, you're like, oh, shoot. OK, get me out. All right. Market's turning. Time to get in yeah. <laughs> or, or vice versa yeah. on, on the, the, the other side of it. And, you know, and I have a prime example, somebody I've worked with for a very, very long time, but extremely emotional. And, and, and she would agree to this. But in October, Right after we saw that drop, she said, "Hey, get! I need you need to get out. I need to sleep." And I, I'm never one to 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 interfere with somebody's sleep or well-being or health, but you know, try to explain what could happen here. And she got out at the the absolute wrong time. And then here comes January. Hey, you know what? I need to get back in. And I said, "I, I said this is not the right thing to do here. We're we're back at highs." And so we we visited this week and we discussed. Said, "Hey, you know, I know." You know, we can make this pros and cons list. And I tell people who've been out of the market for a long time this as well, is that those the cons are typically going to outweigh the pros. But the pros don't take a whole lot to actually get things moving. And, you know, when when looking back at, at this person's returns, she was hurt considerably by trying to time the market, get out, get back in. And so I think it's really difficult. And, you know, we talk about how we, we do we risk manage in the, in the sense that we don't just, it's not an all or nothing strategy where everything's all in or all out, but we do manage based on you know, a, a very, number of variables and factors, technicals, fundamentals, just the overall, uh, you know, looking at the broad market. And I think it's really important to understand that, you know, you can still be in the market, but you need to, you need to be able to protect funds on the down, at least mitigate some risk and then give yourself the ability to actually go in and buy things when they're much cheaper and, and that's what most people lack is they lack the ability to buy when it's cheaper. And that's why, you know, riding it all the way down and riding all the way back up can be extremely harmful to a portfolio, to your financial plan. And without having that ability to one, one either meet expenses and needs, and then two, being able to have that, that opportunity to buy, you know, that's where a lot of people are just left out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, but this is also part of just not having a, a good buy sell strategy. You know, to say, look, this is, you know, setting all these other things aside and just focusing on what's happening in the markets. And again, you know, what happens geopolitically and these type of things typically have very limited impacts on markets. And even though that they're very emotional, they have much less impact on the financial markets. Again, what does the Russian invasion have to do with the earnings for Target, as an example? You know, those are the things that we need to separate out so that we're doing the best job for our money over time. Danny, thanks for joining me today. Of course, get by our website. We've got new articles out this morning uh, with Michael Leibowitz. Also, it's the uh, monthly valuation update from uh, Je uh, uh, Brett Freeze. That's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, we have all of our updates and commentaries out as well for simplevisor.com. That's where that's our fully automated investment service for you to help you manage your money better. Complete research platform to help you manage your stocks better. Simplevisor.com. Check it out. Also, if you have any other questions or comments for me or Danny, feel free to email us. Realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.